Welcome to Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Gary Borland, uh, former chief test pilot for the MOD in the UK, uh, former very successful businessman, uh, and now a, a leader, leading figure in your church. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Richard. Great to be here. No, uh, it's fantastic to have you. And I can safely say our first uh, fighter pilot on the show. <laughs> So I feel somewhat honoured that they've really got a bit of interest on social. Uh, and, yeah, there's a there's a log arc to your uh, to your story, but maybe we should start with um, with that because I'm sure that's going to be fascinating to people. So you 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 left school right at 18 to join the the RAF. Yes. Is, that, is that correct? Mm-hmm. So so maybe we should start there. What what drove you to that decision? And. Mm. I, I, I guess since as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I, I thought it'd be the most amazing thing. Uh, and so it was kind of like a childhood dream. And, and it's interesting with my children now because I, I sort of expected them to have a childhood dream, you know, that, that I were trying to outwork. And of course, they haven't. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a, little bit of a, a little bit of a shock for me, actually. But of course, it all makes complete sense. Why would you at 18 routinely know exactly what you want to do or at 16? The interesting thing for me, though, was that although I really wanted to do it, really wanted to do it, I actually didn't believe that I would be able to do it. Uh, you know, my schooling, I went through school, I thought I was a bit thick, and I thought that people were much more clever than me. Uh, amazing words that people speak over you as well, what teachers can say about you, which I which I'm not critical of them, but, but you can say things about people that sort of land with them and stick right. with them and try to motivate you to do better. And, and sometimes, of course, depending on who you are, how you're wired, your different stage of life, your context, maybe that doesn't motivate me. Maybe that just reinforces what I think I believe about myself. Um, so I... I, I went through school really with a belief that this would be an amazing thing to do, uh, but that I, I, I probably wouldn't be able to do it, but I was going to try really hard. Uh, so I, I applied, I think, when I was about 17, and I was still in short trousers, I think. So they said, come back when you're wearing long trousers. Um, <clears throat> uh, so I decided to leave school at the end of what would have been the first year of uh, A-levels here, which was were called piles in Scotland. Uh, so I, I left there and joined the Air Force as a flight systems technician, thinking that was a <clears throat> that was a good way in. With, with hindsight, I'm, I'm not sure that was a great. I had a great time, but I'm not sure that was a really smart thing to do uh, or not. My my parents, uh, who were incredibly supportive, I, I'm not sure they thought it was a great idea either. It's just Jack schooling and go and do something that might lead you to somewhere else. But in any event, I did and I, I reapplied once I was there. Now, I've been in about two years, I think, <clears throat> uh, between starting basic training as a technician through to uh, starting officer training was exactly two years. So I did my trade training, went to um, uh, a squadron in Scotland, in Lossiemouth, beautiful part of the country. I think we've been up there, staggeringly nice, oh, stunning. Um, it's a sense of a microclimate. Um, okay. But uh, I, I spent... Uh, Probably eight months there, and then I went to RAF Cranwell for flying training. But but it's been really interesting, Richard, how how through uh, and I've heard other people describe this in time with other career fields as well. Feeling like you, you, you're a bit of a fraud, feeling like 
yeah, well, you know, I go here, but I'm just going to catch me out now on it. Uh, you know, I'm going I'm to be found out to officer training. I, I, I'm not really okay for that. I'm going to be found out when I start flying training that I'm not really good enough. And that the things I think or believe about myself uh, are, are, are true and it will all come to pass. And, well, hey, it will have been great anyway. It'll be, at least I would have tried. Um, I'm not sure how far you want me to go with the story because this is... No, I'm... I, yeah, I'm enthralled, and I'm just thinking when when you were the engineer, did, did you always visualize, visualize yourself flying the plane, or or did that sort of emerge as you went along? Probably, I'm not even sure. Visualize, desperately hoping, desperately, desperately hoping. hoping. And in fact, ironically, when um, when they realised I was working in a in an engineering bay at Lossiemouth, and uh, when they realised I'd been accepted for pilot training, they. Um, uh, they sent me out onto the flight line to be a flight line mechanics, you know, uh, seeing aircraft off, seeing them in. And uh, I recall when I went along for a test pilot interview, one of the senior tutors there who was interviewing me, I had strapped him in when he was a buccaneer pilot on that squadron uh, when I was when I was an airman. It's really strange sort of thing. And I, I, I sort of said I remembered it. He said he remembered me. I'm pretty sure he didn't. Why would he? Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was another strange uh, strange experience and, and in your mind you were thinking one day i'm going to be get, i'm going to be the one getting strapped in with did... well w- one day i'm hoping but but even then there's this overwhelming awe of something that felt beyond reality but was alive in my mind and my heart you know it burned in me in a way that i, I can't really describe but it burned in me it's something i so wanted to do that uh, you know, giving up, not doing, but but the deep-seated belief that it was that I could do it was quite low. Oh, it was quite low, but the but the hope was stronger. Oh, massively! And you know, that's a great. I, I talk to my boys about this now. One of my boys is eighteen, the other is twenty-one. I talk to them about this whole thing of you know, you pitch, you can pitch low and you can get low. You can pitch for something you're passionate about, and somewhere the combination of passion. And, and, and capability merge. Mm. And, and if all of those two things are missing, you, it's, it's, it's probably not going to happen, or you're going to be very uncomfortable when, when you are there. But when those two things collide, my goodness, extraordinary things happen, don't they? Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I can, yeah, I can, from my own experience, there's things where you're just desperate for something mm. to happen, and no matter what, yeah. it, it, it sort of comes to pass. Um, yeah, yeah. So doesn't, doesn't it link a little bit? to this notion of when people say you can do anything you want to do well, well actually I, I kind of view that, that, that you can't that there are mm. some things so for example I know that uh, maths was one of the things I, I really struggled with at school and quite honestly I, I struggle with it now I, don't, I just don't get it my brain is not wired in that way I can formulaically remember how to do things if you ask me to apply something to something else mm. not a chance so can I go and be a maths professor? No. Uh, could I go and you know, do something that involves uh, a lot of maths? No, I, I, I couldn't. And that's probably a, uh, perhaps a superficial example, but, but there are many, many examples where, for me, that it's not, it's not the case we can do anything. It is the case we can do extraordinarily more than we believe possible. It is right. how I answer that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And did you find that, so you're there, you're desperate, you're, you're hoping. Uh, and how did it go? I mean, did you, 
did, I mean, what, what's the competition like? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to relate it to some, cause this is all anecdotes to me. I've never been in that kind of such a highly competitive environment with, were there just a few slots available out of the cohort of officers or, you know, what was the path to actually getting your, your ride, so to speak, you know, your first, your yeah. first ride? Well, I guess, I, I, I guess it, people would love to tell you how extraordinarily difficult it, <laughs> it is and how incredible therefore they are. <laughs> I, I've got some news that it's not true. Um, uh, and I just look at myself and the reality of myself and my life, and I think, yeah, you know, so many people could do this um, given an opportunity and given the passion to do it as well. Mm. So was it competitive? Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, but but then many things are competitive, aren't they? And, and we can often hold things in a higher level of awe than we ought to. Um, uh, so there were some amazing people, uh, great people I both served with, and who uh, I suppose competition is really only competition to get through the door. <clears throat> you know, the flying training system. Many many people failed the tri- flying training system at various parts of it uh, for various reasons. Um, but the desire always by those, in my experience, of those instructing us was that there was a place for everyone. You know, we, we, we weren't trying to cycle. They weren't trying to cycle out a whole lot of people. Uh, so, so people were for you. Uh, they wanted you to succeed. And again, that creates an environment where um, I'm sure some people felt competitive in it. But I felt very competitive with myself. You know, I was trying to do something for me. Maybe even, dare I say prove something to me, overcoming some of the feelings from, from previously. I, I, I'm not sure, but I think there's an element of that. Mm. Have you ever dug deep into that as to wondering if there was, you know, what were the deeper drives for you to become a, mm. a pilot? I, more, more so in the last few years, actually, where I've started to get much more comfortable. Uh, I've got very comfortable now, but, but it, I don't know, perhaps five years ago, a little bit more starting to unpack who I was, what drove me, what had driven me, what did I feel, because that's not something I would talk a lot about. Um, and, and in the process of doing that, starting to look back and reflect on some things in my early life, because this, this sort of anecdote about uh, how I felt going through school, that didn't really occur to me until many, many, many years later. Uh, I knew it at the time, I, I, I acutely felt it, but I... I didn't really relate it to where I was or what I was doing. And the, the benefit of getting older, of course, is you can reflect sometimes and, and, and it's okay to be you. Uh, and it, it, it's okay to look back and think, yeah, maybe maybe some of that was driven by something other than this deep desire to fly or whatever the example is. Um, and, and I think one of the biggest things that's occurred to me uh, is the whole notion of emotional connectivity with self do i emotionally understand me and my drivers and and it became <laughs> when i started to unpack that a little bit with some help from some amazing people um oh my goodness no no evidently not i, do, I really don't understand that at all uh, right and if i if i link that back to parenting i had a wonderful parent sadly both of whom have passed away and my father passed away recently uh incredible People, wonderful people, wonderful parents. Um, but my father in particular was from a generation and his own background where sitting down talking about emotional things with, with others just really wasn't something he did. And if he did, I didn't have exposure to it. Um, 
So I would probably say I left home at 18, uh, an emotional infant. I could emotionally connect with people, relate to people, have strong empathy for others, uh, but I didn't emotionally understand myself. And to be honest, I, I don't think I wanted to even go there because I didn't know what it was, how to unpack, and what would happen when you did unpack. I, I wish, with hindsight, I had had some help doing that 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, I really, really do. Because there were some things there that would have enabled me to... Uh, to, to interact differently, to be different uh, in a way that I, I couldn't access at the time. So I, I, I try and do that with my boys now. They, they don't always like it, uh, uh, but, but they're, they're, they're great. And, and just getting them to kind of open up. But I starts with me. I'm, I'm creating, I need to create that vulnerability in self. I need mm. to show them that I'm prepared to be open to them, which gives them a route into being open with me and more comfortable. And we've had, we've had some great conversations around that, that recently. Right. Yeah. And especially, especially, especially for males, it's, uh, it's, it's more taboo, isn't it? And it's, mm. uh, it's less, uh, less encultured in males. I remember when I first joined a 12 step meeting in my, what was it, in, in my early thirties and we had to do this round around the meeting and everyone had to say what they're feeling. And I was like, well, I feel fine, you know? And, and I remember it took me, it took me you know, it, it took me years to actually practice using words like, I feel scared or I feel sad, yeah. you know, that, that just building some articulacy around feelings took, took some time, right? When I first yeah. started uh, doing something similar to what you're describing, I, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, you know, when I look at that now, Richard, if I look at that in the context of uh, leaders in the context of anyone Getting in the mirror is a great place to be, maybe with a bit of support. Get, get in the mirror and start to let some things emerge and unpack. Because when they do, extraordinary things around you start to change. Mm. Uh, where, whereas we often spend a lot of our life looking out the window, pointing at everybody else. You know, great phrases you hear daily, don't you? Like, oh, you made me do X. Well, you probably didn't make me do anything. I, 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 I responded to something you did, but that's not your fault that I responded mm. that way. That's, mm. that's, that's me. And I wonder about stereotyping and conditioning. And, uh, you know, I talked a bit about my father and, and, and his parents who loved him, but who just emotionally almost certainly weren't, weren't connecting that way. But when you read men are from, is it men are from Mars? Women, I've not read it. Mm. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And it culturally reinforces all these stereotypes where... There's no doubt that, or it seems to me, there's, there's, there's little doubt that, that men and women are wired differently. But of course, there's such a spectrum of both and such an overlap of both that, my goodness, we've got to be careful about, about pigeonholing, stereotyping, putting labels on people. Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. And also not to, but then also to not go too far the other way. Of course, there's value mm -hmm. in controlling feelings and especially, yeah. I suppose, as men, as warriors and or, or women as warriors for that matter, you know, there mm -hmm. will be, a value in suppression of feelings as well so it's it's not like mm. that there's there's nuance in this but um certainly having that ability to to articulate one's feelings and uh is is definitely access to self-knowledge mm. i think it's what certainly mm. has been for me um yes and your notion of uh you know controlling it, it's appropriate it's appropriate 
airing and sharing. I suppose it's like any way of communicating or interacting with other people, isn't it? There's a, there's a time and a place. Right. Okay, in the boardroom, just to start start blubbing because you know you you're overwhelmed by some particular emotion. However, in other cases, it may be entirely appropriate. Yeah, um, even in the boardroom. I mean, Steve Jobs was famous right. for, for, for for bursting into tears right in the middle of meetings, and uh, yeah, to do it well. Yeah, we can have the Steve Jobs debate, but certainly, yeah, he was effective yes. in many ways. So um, that's interesting. Okay, so you get to just back back to your story. So that that first. So what was it like? That the the first moment then? Can you still recall that your first? Is there a sort of a, a marker in your mind when you're like, okay, I've done it, I've made it, I've become the guy I so desperately hoped to become? No, and, and, and probably never actually, Richard. I, I remember when I was uh, in business sitting down with a, a mentor I had, fabulously good mentor, uh, who asked me, uh, and I was probably 40 at the time, and he said, can you tell me something that you're really proud of that you've done in the past? And I said, oh, um, uh, now this wasn't, this, this wasn't about false humility. This was just really genuinely, I, I, I'm part of my wiring now is, or certainly was, that if I can do it, then I should be able to do it. So there's nothing to be proud of. I can either do it or I can't do it. And I should do my best. And, uh, but I, I, I couldn't come up with anything. And he said, well, hang on a minute, you've, you know, you've done this and you've done this and you've done this. And you." I said, yeah, they, they were all great things, amazing things to have done. But I'm not proud of myself for having done them. I'm just, I've just done them. They were great. Mm. I love doing them. Uh, and, and there was something unbalanced about that. It was a very astute question, actually, because there was something a bit unbalanced about that. You know, even if you replace the word pride with please or... Mm. or Something perhaps less emotive. Um, still, I, I, I couldn't have come up with something. But I've talked about enjoyment I got from it, but not something that I would relate back to myself. Um, so, so, so in terms of the first fly, the, the whatever, it, it was just a part of a journey that, that then went on for, you know, two decades. Um, two decades of tremendous fun, but but feeling through through much of it that. You know, you're about to trip up somewhere. You, 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 it's going it's to end at some point. And before I, before I, when I was doing my trade training, my uh, as a flight systems technician, I used all the money I had to pay for a private pilot's license. And so I would cycle. You know, it was like an hour and a half each way, uh, every weekend, every Saturday and Sunday, rain, wind, horrible journey actually. Um, I got my bike every, you know, seven o'clock in the morning. I'd cycle to the flying club. I'd fly. I'd cycle back. I'd do the same on Sunday. Uh, um, it, you know, it was all about trying to get myself as prepared as I could. So I'd I'd flown before, um, and I could, you know, I had a private pilot's license by then. Uh, but but getting into this this jet, which looks antiquated now, it's called a jet forest. Uh, climbing into that and getting strapped in. Now you've got a big helmet, you've got all your gear, it's slightly suffocating. Um, but it was great. Tremendously good fun. But I never ever felt right on there. I was always looking for what's next. What's the next challenge? What's the next mountain to climb? Um, which is, on the one hand, uh, is very positive. On the other hand, you have a sort of notion of eternal dissatisfaction. 
you're never there. So you're never in the moment as you could or should be in the moment, which I think is really important. And maybe it's just because I'm getting old. <laughs> well, you know, there, there may be something that for, you, for you to uncover there about this reticence to absorb what's happened and acknowledge mm. where you've got to. I mean, yeah, maybe there's something to look at there. Mm. Or maybe not, right? It's, maybe not, yeah. 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 Maybe it's just what it is. <laughs> it's just what it is. <laughs> right, and and then so yeah, back. So you're flying, and then and then the transition. So you were you you transitioned then from being a a pilot to a to a test pilot. So so how did that work? Did how does that transition go? Because that's another sort of elevation, is it in 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 that in that path? It's 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 probably a specialization more than an elevation. So. Um, uh, when I finished flying training, I went on to a tornado squadron, uh, ground attack tornadoes in Germany. Uh, and then in sort of third year of that tour was the Gulf War. So I flew in the Gulf War out of Dharan, did about 20 combat sorties. Um, from there, I went back to teach on the tornado weapons combustion unit, as it was called, where we taught people how to uh, operate fight with airplane effectively, uh, use it as a weapon system. Um, so I tossed on there, and then I, uh, I was really fortunate to get an exchange to the U.S. Navy, uh, flying uh, A6 intruders out of Whidbey Island, which is in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I don't know if you've ever been up in the Pacific Northwest in, in the States. What a place. I can absolutely recommend the visit. It's just tremendous. A beautiful house we had, uh, but, but, but an amazing place, fantastic people. Um, I was then uh, fortunate enough to be able to go out to the aircraft carrier. I flew off the USS Kitty Hawk day and night, which was, again, just tremendously good fun. That's pretty eye-watering the first couple of times. Um, but again, that's just great. Uh, but again, that's an example of where, in my experience, a lot of people love to make what they do sound incredibly difficult. Because if it's difficult, <laughs> not many people can do it. Maybe it says something about me, right? And I'm thinking, well, no, actually, all of these people got here by various routes. Uh, you know, the majority of them would be successful. The next time they got to the next stage, they'd be successful. And so, uh, you, you know, there isn't anything extraordinary about it. I was related to driving a car. Well, I, well, I don't know if you remember when you first started driving a car. I remember driving my dad's Hillman in which uh, you probably won't even remember, Richard. Do you? No, no, no. Well, I, I can yeah, visualize it. Yeah. It's in a museum, have you? <laughs> Um, Grady black and white for yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, imagine, by the way, imagine five of you jammed in there with all your luggage going from the west coast of Scotland to Bournemouth on a hot summer's day. Not great, not a good journey. Um, uh, anyway, how did we get to Hilton? I'm just thinking, I, I, I'm rested taking my kids in the, in the car to you know, this weather we're having right now in, in the UK, and we've got air conditioning. Air conditioned estate going on. Like, oh, I don't know if I fancy the journey, but yeah. yeah. Different time. How did we get to Hillman you know, uh, I don't know. So, yeah, you're talking about going from the west coast of Bournemouth down to, sorry, west coast of Scotland down to Bournemouth. Yeah, that was pretty random, actually. That was linked to something else we were just talking about. So, you had been talking about in the, the northwest of uh, the states yeah, flying on. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we spent, uh, my wife and I, we didn't have children at the time, we spent two and a half years up in the Pacific Northwest, stunning, stunning part of the world, flying A6s, as I said, uh, teaching students uh, how to fly and, and to fight with A6, uh, which was just, just we're just such, such an amazing 
really, really, really great time. Did lots of traveling around the US. We had a van, we made these little curtains in, selecting a van for weeks at a time. Uh, just, just a great, great experience and great people. Uh, and actually, what, something that really struck us there was, you know, when people, we, we caricature people, don't we, in groups of people, mm. like Brits, Americans, you know, French people, Germans, whatever, uh, Americans, you know, there's what, what, nearly 300 million of them in, in, in a vast, vast continent that is so diverse, wonderful, wonderful uh, country, just incredible. Uh, incredible people, incredible diversity through there. And we, we kind of started with this glimpse of, you know, the world is so completely different to the one we live in. And even within what appears to be the same geography is, is very different again. Um, so we finished, we finished that tour, came back to the States, uh, sorry, from the States. Uh, then I did another tour in Germany's flight commander on Tomato Squadron. And then during that, I applied for test pilot training I did test pilot, uh, the test pilot course, which was a year-long course, then part test pilot school. Uh, and then I had to, had to do maths. I mean, that was a, that was a shocker. Uh, so this is, where, this is where you have to get, <clears throat> get straight about yourself now. So the maths on the course, if, you're, if you do maths well, is, is probably not, not a big deal for me, absolute nightmare. So I had to get a maths tutor who, who was a wonderful lady called Anne-Marie, and she, uh, she sat me down on the first session before it, and she said, so... Uh, can we just sort of baselining where you are? And, and, and I tried a little bit of baselining myself before she arrived because I thought this is a bit awkward, really. And, and I said, to be honest with you, if you presented me with different types of fractions, <laughs> I would be struggling with them right now. <laughs> she said, ah, right, so we've got quite a bit of work to do. Well, yes, we do. Uh, but she was great. <clears throat> anyway, I did the test pilot course, uh, which was a great experience. Uh, then I, uh, I was a Jaguar and Tornado test pilot uh, for a couple of years, went off to um, the Advanced Command and Staff course. Uh, I then came back as uh, commanding what was called Fast Jet Test Squadron at the time, where all the aircraft fast jets were tested um, uh, again at Boston Down. I then went back to the Staff College to teach in the Advanced Command and Staff course, which has got about... 50 nations of uh, officers uh, for a year. Uh, incredible experience, really, really fabulous. And again, context, culture, understanding people, differences, where they come mm -hmm. from. Uh, one of my, I'm digressing a little bit, but one of, one of the, the things that really struck me and stuck with me was a debate in the main lecture theater in front of all the students uh, between a senior Israeli and a senior Palestinian. And the Palestinian stood up and he gave his hour's presentation, uh, however long it was. And, and I remember him sitting down and me thinking, and, and subsequently this was shared by many others, wow, yeah, absolutely, I can see that. Oh, my, my goodness. And he really stands up and he does his hour. And I think, oh, my goodness. And then you realize there is so little we know and so much we purport to know, yet here were two people, and I could quite easily align with either fully in what they were saying. Uh, a, a tremendous lesson, actually. And, you know, when I hear something behind, my, my sort of thing now is behind every story, there's a story. When I'm hearing something, there's something else going on there. There's something in context that I don't know, that the person maybe hasn't even accessed. Um, anyway, that was, that was Staff College. And then I came back from there, 
uh, as the Ministry of Defence Chief Test Pilot, right. which was uh, sort of final tour I did. I was really fortunate to be able to fly all the helicopter types, all the fast jet types, all the heavy aircraft types. Tremendous job, tremendous people, uh, just doing a great job. So I left there in, uh, in 2008, and then I joined Kinetic. So that was the end of my flying. Right. Well, so one thing that struck me there, actually, just in terms of your insight about how people have these stories, and there's a story behind the story, and you know, at some level, you know, there's a humanity in all of us. So how did so how did you reconcile that with presumably when you're in Iraq and you're flying sorties and you know that there may be you know, people losing their lives as a result of your actions? Isn't mm. there a need to sort of other them in some senses to separate yourself in order to be able to, to do that? I mean, how, do, how does that work? I mean, mm. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to give you an answer that it was a sophisticated um, thought and emotional process, but, but it wasn't. Um, I guess one of the things about aviation, uh, unlike uh, uh, a lot of soldiering, is that you're relatively distant. Now, you might argue if you were, uh, um, you know, in some sort of air-to-air engagement, that's more personalized, but it's still depersonalized. And therein lies a whole different world of, you know, when I depersonalize something, what does that allow me to do in terms of the way I act, the things I'm prepared to do, that I'm distant from the actual outcome of the thing I'm involved in? Um, so I would say there really wasn't any processing of what that looked like at the time. I'm 27. I'm doing the job I've trained to do. I was desperate to be out there. You know, there's... And maybe there's something about proving yourself as well. Maybe when you link back to that childhood, the, mm. the not being good enough, there's this constant theme which I think runs through a, through a lot of my life, which is proving myself. Proving myself to who? Uh, Invariably to myself, I think. Um, but, but maybe not. Maybe that's just maybe that's a convenient story as well. Or maybe, maybe there's something more there. So I, I, I never really rationalized or connected those two things uh, or tried to. Uh, I have subsequently, um, and, and of course, I'll never really know what impact I had or didn't have, uh, the legitimacy of the action, the legitimacy of the coalition and the way Iraq. I, I can tell you the story I could tell you because that's the story I was told. Um, you know, a destabilized Middle East, you know, way invasion, you know, you know, we, we, we get, we, we, we have a narrative around that, which is a context which might or might not be, be right. So I've tried, kind of tried to explore a bit of that myself. In looking back, what, what did I actually think of that whole situation? It was absolutely adamant that it was the right thing we were doing. And um, it's just interesting to explore it. Uh, it is it? Was it? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but at but the I time don't... you lent on that, that narrative is what? I mean, as well as your burning desire, if if there was yes. any conflict yeah, at yeah. all, it was assuaged by this narrative of helping yes. to bring stability to the region or something like that. Yes, that yes, because but because the notion of bringing legitimacy to our actions is very powerful. We see this all through history, don't we? You know, we legitimise actions often against a very narrow context or a cause or something else, uh, which which can be extremely dangerous. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I perhaps wish I was able to think of that more at the time, or maybe I'm not, maybe I just need to get on with my job. But um, 
I've, I've tried reflecting subsequently. Well, I guess the, those who would have been too philosophical probably got weeded out pretty early, I'm guessing. It sort of required yeah. a certain acceptance and compliance, presumably, to be effective. Yes. Yeah, and I do, I do recall, actually, uh, something quite strange, which is I think within the first, I don't know, two or three weeks, we'd lost about half a dozen airplanes, and some of those were people I knew, um, uh, a couple of really, really closely. Uh, in fact, just before it, um, uh, a really good friend flew into the, into the desert just before it started, um, flying, flying very low, hit the, hit the desert, killed. Um, so, but there was something kind of unreal about that. It was just, you know, you, you would hear about people and names and you get up in the morning for breakfast and somebody didn't come back last night and it was all just kind of normalised. Just stick it away in a box, which I, I think, I believe you need to be able to do. Um, it's interesting which box you're putting it in. Why is it so easy to put it in a box? And do you ever go into the box and try and get it out again? Uh, which I have, I have subsequently tried to do. So that's, that's a really dark part of a cupboard sitting in there that's not been opened. Uh, I can just leave shut because it doesn't even niggle at me, except occasionally if I read or recall something about those individuals. Uh, so yeah, again, interesting inquiry for me, ongoing, probably mm. some time. Right. But just as you're saying that, I'm thinking we must have developed that as humans. I mean, we've been warring with each other for... Right. as long as we've existed right so we must have developed those psychological that's okay. yes. capacity and it's fascinating isn't it when you when you consider that that it, that some of those what feel pretty essential um uh capabilities uh if that's the right word uh, and how inappropriately we can then apply them or overlay them so then people commit acts that, that you think oh my goodness how, how can you just go on with your life having having done that well well it's probably possibly in the same box it's possibly the same mechanism that allows things that are really aberrant to be corporate and to be mm. to be managed i don't know yeah. if it's possible mm. yeah okay i don't know quite now how i segue to this but i did have a technical question on facebook oh did you well, on facebook okay yeah i'll put the people who knew you were on oh, I, hope so, not, yeah. I hope it's not technical <laughs> did, so did you get to Thai typhoons? Were you did you did you fly though? Was that did that overlap? Uh, when I was the chief test pilot, I flew a typhoon in the states um, with the uh, one of the the operation evaluation unit that I was commanding at the time. So yes, I did fly tremendous airplane, uh, fabulous. Uh, but I've, I've flown I've flown many 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 different types of aircraft now, and uh, and and they're all different and they're all they're all tremendous. So some people will often ask, you know, what's, what's the best aeroplane? Well, well, it kind of depends what you want to do with it. If, if I want to go in at night, in rain, in low cloud, um, uh, uh, give me a tornado, please, because it does it fabulously well. Uh, don't give me a typhoon to do that, but please. Um, if you want something with more agility, with more air-to-air uh, -air capability, with ability to integrate, different weapon suites and communication systems and sensors and uh, then yeah hey i'll have a i'll have a typhoon please or i'll have one of those i'll have one of those if i want to be transported to dubai on holiday don't, don't give me either please give me something with a big seat and a, and a <laughs> right 
that's what you want to do with that, yeah? Right. So what he's asking is, what's the best rate of climb that you saw in a typhoon? Oh, goodness, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'd have to Google that or something at the moment <laughs> to even vaguely have an idea. Uh, but because, to be honest, because I had very little exposure to it, you know, I only learned it for an hour and a half or whatever. I, I don't really know. I wasn't, I wasn't really looking at that particularly. But, but yeah, tremendous performance. Yeah, really, really, really eye-wateringly good. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm definitely not a, an airplane geek, but I was doing a bit of research before this interview and seeing that by some by some reckoning the typhoon was the best of the the available fighter aircraft right now is it <laughs> they, they all bring something different fair enough okay so now you so you you've you've reached that that level chief chief test pilot and then and then that's that's your jumping off point right and then you then you leave and go into yeah. business yeah, so I, I, I left uh, before the end of my tour and I joined a company called Kinetic, um, a security company you, you, you perhaps know. Uh, and I joined as a, a director of flight operations. It was a, a role I sort of that they didn't have for themselves and I, what I could do for them. So uh, I left, uh, joined them, and then through a whole series of things, some of which were really unfortunate because people had got on well. Uh, I ended up as an operations director in one of the air businesses. I think there were three or four air businesses at that time. Uh, then I uh, ended up with where the new CEO arrived uh, and did a bit of, let's look at new leadership. And I ended up sort of in the pot for that and got, got sort of connected with and ended up uh, getting one of the managing director roles, which out of one of the three businesses, uh, air businesses, as we had then. Um, but again, that was an example of, um, I, said to, I said to Sharon, I said, when I came home, I said, hey, I've just got this, uh, you know, hey, like, what's that all about? Right? And because there was a big thing in business about the size of the P&L you'd run. You know, you need to run an X amount size P&L and a Y amount, then you have to have this experience and that experience. And, you know, looking back, I, I, I just don't really think that's necessarily in all environments particularly credible. Um, uh, so I, I ended up with this uh, P&L, with this business of 600-odd people, and it was a tremendous experience. Uh, but for as much as what I didn't know is what I did know. And, and the thing that I really, really wanted to get my head around early on was how did I connect with people and how did people connect with me? Uh, and just to cut a long, and I'll perhaps come back to that, but just to cut a longish story short, we then merged the businesses into two air businesses, uh, and I led one of those. Then we integrated them into one business, and I then ended up as the managing director of uh, that single air business in Kinetic. Um, but I really carried forward with me this desire to understand what people thought, how they felt, what they, because I had really started to access something for myself that said, okay, if I can look in the mirror and get in a better impression of what are my sort of emotional triggers, what's underlying me, what are my underlying insecurities, fears, I can be pretty confident that there are many others out there, most of which I don't know anything about. And I can ask people, but the chances are, that they're not going to tell me unless I build a relationship. 
unless I can create an environment where they believe they have permission, truly believe they have permission to say what they think, then it will be very difficult to lead a large group of people effectively um, and to understand what motivates them. Because we, we'd love to think, you know, shareholder value is what drives our, well, of course, for many people, that's not. For some people, it might be, I can come to work at night and I can go home at four and I can take my kids up and, and you know, that's great. Uh, you know, what are the things that drive each individual person rather than hoping they all get cocooned into this little bubble that we might wish them to be in in the corporation or in any corporation? Um, so my journey of uh, discovering self started to flow into how do I make myself vulnerable with other people so I can start to create that environment. And by the way, Richard, I'm not suggesting uh, for anybody listening to this that I did this brilliantly because uh, there are many things I didn't do well. Um, but there were some things I think I learned that I applied that I think were reasonably effective. Um, I started to build and I had done since I, since I joined uh, Kinetic, a groups of people who I knew would talk to me. Uh, and I started running what I call Wiggles, what's going on, these small groups, and maybe be like anything between six and maybe 10 people in them. And that's people who wanted to come along, sit with me, and talk about whatever they want to talk about. There was no agenda. And we'd sit down, sometimes we'd have cake and coffee, because sometimes that might be an insight, an inducement to come. Um, but I learned more in those about leading people and what made people tick. And of course, it's only the people I'm interacting with than I did in probably most of the rest of my career, if I'm honest. Uh, because I listened to people. Mm. Uh, I, I truly listened. And I listened through a lens of, I really want to know. And you're going to tell me some things that, I, that might cause a reaction in me but I need to hear those because now I have access to something I didn't know yesterday and I can do something tomorrow about the thing you just told me. Not necessarily fix something a person doesn't like, but I have an understanding now of the sorts of things that engage people, motivate, inspire, and rule them and where we're going. I could talk about that forever, but that's been a huge part of what I love doing now, which is about getting alongside people and sort of bringing the gold out in them or trying to support them and bringing that gold out in themselves. And sometimes that journey also involves getting into the mirror uh, and but getting alongside people with a story of your own and a narrative that says, I, I, you know, I, I don't understand you, but I, I, I can tell you about me. I can tell you what it's been like for me. Um, so I, I could perhaps build an environment where it's a safe environment, it's a trusted environment, and I described the notion of get, getting in the trench with somebody who knows you've fallen, truly believes that you've fallen, and that's that's why you're there. Right. And then, and so, how would it? Would you? How would people show up? You would just say open hours with Gary. Come and tell me your troubles, or you know, just a mechanism for that might be interesting for people. Yeah. So we we would put dates in the diary, and uh, um, uh, my PA here was. Fantastic. She, uh, she would put these dates in and she'd sort of coordinate with people who wanted to come along. Right, so and, it's a computer uh, open, open invite, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes some people will come, sometimes a lot of people come, sometimes they're oversubscribed, sometimes they're undersubscribed. What was really interesting was we also opened um, 
Uh, so I had a blog that I ran as well, and I tried to create personal vulnerability in that blog as well. I thought, you know, like, for example, I'd share some funny stories about what was happening at home, you know, with the boys who were younger at the time and some of the things that they did. And what a few people said to me, you know, it's great to kind of connect the fact that you've got the same stuff going on at home as we've got, you know, that the MDs kids are doing exactly the same else's kids yeah they are probably more besides so that was that was great but we also opened uh, or had a, a sort of chat forum on there and and when we first set that up uh surprise surprise it's an indicator of culture i think uh no nobody says anything nobody comments on anything and so so i was really keen with the leadership that when we when we set this up that you know it would have to be an extreme case where we went in and commented or tried to shut something down because it was inappropriate. Because if we ever did that, it would, nobody's going to say anything on there again. So this sort of online chat would, um, I worked with a tremendous uh, lady who, who brought a lot of experience in this area with me and talked about the notion of when you get to the point of people self-policing on a forum like that, then, then you've kind of got somewhere because people are sharing, people are self-policing, nobody's intervening or having to intervene. But I was trying to create as many pathways as possible to connect with people so they truly but truly believed that somebody wanted to listen and that so I and the leadership could truly benefit from what it was they thought and felt and saw and believed and wanted and hoped for and uh, because without that I'm just running around blind doing, doing leadership stuff dragging everybody along right and uh, yeah I think that's I think there's something to be said there about creating I mean it's sort of almost become a little bit of a hackneyed phrase now but psychological safety but this idea of creating mm. fora where people do feel safe to yeah to speak the truth and that being an important well an, mm. an important part of of almost mitigating the the problems with bureaucracy because bureaucracy is great in the sense that it's an efficient way to flow information up and down an organization and create mm. a certain level of stability but the downside is you get these you get the real story right you're not getting the raw data about what's going on it's all synthesized and so how do you create parallel communication channels and it seems like you you managed to do that well it it, it was certainly partially successful the the, the challenge always of course is that you can do a hundred things to create the environment you can kill it with one thing or you can set it back considerably with one thing um uh, Kinetic used, I'm not sure what they use now, but they used the uh, uh, top 100 best companies survey for, for people, which was, again, a great vehicle because it was anonymized. So I was much more interested in the comments than I was the scores. And uh, it's very easy to wish away individual comments as the dissenter, you know, oh, they always say that, don't they? No, they're probably saying it for a reason. There's probably something we don't want to hear behind what they're saying. They may not be expressing themselves particularly well. They may be expressing themselves brilliantly, but but we need to hear from them. And so we would collect all of those comments. We would sort of thematically organize them. Then we would assign a leader to each area of, of, we then called it, you said we did, over the next year. And we had a leader updating our everyone on where they were and they put cross uh, business teams together to get people involved, employees who wanted to be involved in it and just another way of trying to get people engaged and really believe 
what we say is I can tell you I'm interested in you, but unless you experience it, I, it's it's all for naught. I don't I don't believe you necessarily. So mm. I'm passionate about it. I'm not an expert in it. I certainly wasn't an expert in it. Uh, but the very things that would have triggered me in the past and created emotional reactions and some of those comments that people made, I, I no longer feared. I welcomed them. I saw them as things I didn't know yesterday and something I could do something about tomorrow. And when did, and that, okay, so that ability to take these potentially triggering situations, did that start when you started in business or were you seeing mm. the beginnings of that when you were still at the MOD or when did that transition start? That's a good question. And that didn't start probably in Kinetic until mm, a couple of years in, uh, where I, <laughs> I got together with a coach. And, and, and I wanted to talk about coaching my leadership team. And she wanted to talk about me. <laughs> That's a bit awkward. I'm thinking, well, oh, I'm talking about me. I need to fix them. Yeah, and uh, and you know this this lady who, who I won't name, but it is my uh, firm intention to reconnect with her and 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 just say thank you to her because she started something that at the time just triggered a firework of, uh, a fireworks factory of emotions off of me, uh, but was the beginning of something that started to unlock uh, a, a, a whole range of, of things for me. Uh, so I, I went from that to that. That was the, that was the catalyst for the journey, <clears throat> and then I we ended up uh, probably a year or so later engaging uh, another organisation and our very own Philida. Uh, so Philida, who also works with First Human, the sponsor of this program. First Human, which is which I, I, for me is such a privilege to be working alongside Philida and yourself and Audi, and, and it's just tremendous. Um, but engaging with Philida was another uh, really big steps in, in thinking about unpacking self again. And what I loved about the work we did with Philida uh, and, and the team she was with was it was really focused on self. Uh, you know, let, let's stop looking out the window for a while. <laughs> Let, let's look at self, let's look at our reactions, let's look at the way we listen and then we speak and the language we use and the sort of things we say. And, you know, kind of a bit of a joke really about, you know, leaders can, there are two things they can do, they can listen and they speak or maybe they can lift heavy boxes or something. But generally speaking, in a big organization, you listen and speak. Um, that was life-changing actually for me. And it was life-changing in that I, I, I recall being challenged to take this stuff home <laughs> and see how it works out before you start trying to export it. Uh, and and you know what? The domestic, the home environment for me was what is is it was a difficult place to do it because that's probably the place I give myself permission to behave the worst. I, I was I wasn't really accountable to anybody. I just you know if I was badly behaved, I could be badly behaved. Uh, but but that accessed something in my home life with my wife, with my children, with relationships, which again was was life changing, profoundly impactful. And that was all about unpacking self. And I'm still on that journey, Richard. I'm, I'm you know I'm a walk in progress. But I hope I hope 
I'll continue to be a work in progress for the rest of my life because then I'll be learning something and I'll be having new things exposed to me which give me access to new ways of being and thinking and, 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 and supporting others in unlocking. Right. And can you recall what, you know, what was the first big thing you learned about yourself or you had to accept about yourself in that process? Uh, yeah, I, I think it would be about the notion of fears. So the word fear, this is context again, isn't it? Fear, well, I'm not, you know, the fast jet pilot. I'm not, I'm not frightened. I was in the Gulf War. I'm not frightened, I? I wasn't. I didn't feel, I didn't feel fear. That. I felt excitement. It was tremendous. Uh, and I still got through my life thinking, you know, I'm not fearful. I, you know, I don't fear things. And I guess I'm riddled with them. I'm riddled with insecurities. I'm riddled with fears. It's just that they're so well packaged and they're jammed in the cupboard, they're cemented in place. I don't even begin to know what they are and certainly don't want to know what they are. Um, and the revelation that I actually was riddled with fears and insecurities caused me to, against the backdrop of other things that had started to emerge from me, caused me to think, how good would it be if I was able to unpack that and get to a point where, although I would still be working probably the rest of my life to understand it all, to apply, but that I could begin to see something different and that when I was triggered with some sort of emotional reaction and interaction with somebody or something, that I could respond in a way that said, oh, that's interesting. Why do I feel the way I feel about this situation? And, I, and actually, I'm in, in the context of my journey, I'm there now. When I feel something like that, I actually now enjoy the sensation of, oh, that burns me. Why is that? I don't enjoy the burning feeling, but that is burning me. Why is it burning me? I, if I give you a very trivial example, but it's quite, it's quite a powerful one. I was saying to Sharon, my wife, the other day, I was driving around a roundabout, and somebody, somebody cuts up in front of me. I'm really close, and then they wave at me. Now, in the moment of waving, something changes. Something's completely diffused because the person appears to me to be acknowledging that something they did wasn't helpful or inappropriate or wrong or having lots of stuff. Now, this is a depersonalized thing, a, a, a faceless person in a car, a nameless person in a car with whom I have no relationship. Had they waved and diffused something, if they hadn't diffused it, it, it had become a personal thing. What, what's personal about somebody cutting up and around about it? They didn't say, oh, here's Gary coming. I'm going to wait till he arrives, then they cut him up. Because I know that way annoys him. That was nonsense, isn't it? But the way I respond to that, you know, you, I, I've got much better at this now over the years. Or as I was describing to a friend the other day, people who, you know, you might pull out of a garage and someone will keep driving at the speed they're driving at, or perhaps speed up a little bit. Uh, so they can get right up behind you and start flashing you. Now I have to say with some embarrassment, I've done that myself in the past. I'm not proud of I'm not proud of telling you that, Richard, but I've done it. And I think, what is that all about? What's going on that causes me to do that? So there are almost these small things in life that are tremendous windows into how we certainly me, how I take, why I take the way I do. And I, and, and I really love to engage with those now. But my fears and my insecurities, back to the original part of the question, my fears and my insecurities, without starting to access those and be comfortable being uncomfortable, it's okay. They are what they are. Just because I try and hide them doesn't make them not a thing. They're just what they are. 
then if I can start to unpack them, I can do some other things. Mm. And I, I think that, I mean, it resonated that our last guest was a guy who's all into being grounded and he did this barefoot walk across Iceland. But one of the things that resonated with me was this idea of, of going inside. You know, we're always looking yeah. out there. And you yes. see that so much in management, right? You know, or, or leadership. We're always looking for the next technique or, and I'm totally guilty yeah. of this or paradigm or approach or, mm. you know, whatever concept is going to help me be more effective. And of course, well, certainly in my experience, the most powerful insights and, and progression or learnings comes from when we ask, we go within, yeah. we go inside. Yes. And, I, and, and, you know, we, we're talking leadership about vulnerability, don't we? Making yourself vulnerable. I, I guess there's a reality to the fact that we're vulnerable anyway. Whether, we, whether I make myself vulnerable, as in share with someone else, I, I'm vulnerable to those things anyway. And, and, I, and I'm quite often living out those vulnerabilities, the securities, the fears, bringing it out often can spark, certainly for me would have sparked, uh, oh, there's a risk. You know, what will people think? And, and, and each time I've done something like that, I've always been really pleasantly surprised that people interact with me differently saying, hey, I really appreciate you sharing that. Really appreciate it as a leader, you, you tell us, about, you know, because that's kind of hard for us too. You think, actually, this is, this is connecting with people. This is being real with people. This is being grounded, as you describe it. This is powerful. It's not about beating yourself up. It's about being really clear about what's driving motivating it in order to allow us to connect with people and in the leadership context in order to allow us to do something extraordinary and not be held mm. back by those fears, those leadership traits that are running in opposition to the very thing we purport to stand for. Mm. That's right. It, it, it creates an opening for, for an extraordinary mm. conversation, doesn't it? It starts yeah. with, well, often starts yes. with get, being vulnerable. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you, so, so Gary, the sort of the opening up, um, Gary is happening and, and the, you're running these, these open sessions, uh, and you're on this, this journey of, of getting to know self. And now there's a transition into your work in the faith community. So is that, is that a part of a deepening of that or, you know, talk us through that transition and and what happened? Mm. Yeah, so about two years ago, I left, I left Kinetic. I was on a six-month notice. I did about eight months by the time I resigned and then, and then left the company. But I didn't leave the company. Kinetic is a tremendous company, tremendous people. I didn't leave the company because I was unhappy or dissatisfied. I, I left because I thought, oh, this is another opportunity and stage of my life where I can do something different. And, and I didn't really know what different looked like. Uh, uh, and, and to be able to do something different, I need space to think about it and to understand what was out there, things I could do, things I could not do. Um, and I've never had the opportunity really, or I've never created the opportunity, and I now have it in part because both my boys are over 18 and certainly self-sufficient. Um, are either of them following their dad or either of them becoming pilots? No, goodness, no. No, in fact... Um, uh, a little anecdote, if I may digress slightly. Uh, many years ago, uh, I was flying out of uh, at the airfield, and, and uh, Sharon brought the boys down to the end of the runway, and I was flying a Jaguar at the time, no longer in service. But as, I, I'd go over the top of them, you know, creeping, and thinking, oh, they're going to be loving this, uh, roaring. Uh, and I get back home, and 
I said, hey, hey, boys, how was it? Quite young. I said, how was it? Yeah. Oh, it was really noisy, Daddy. Yeah, my tummy was shaking. I didn't like it. It was too loud. What? Too <laughs> <laughs> loud? And then, and then the final, the final uh, uh, down-to-earth and reality was, Daddy, we saw a man in an army uniform today. Sorry? <laughs> we saw an army man. Did you? That's nice. And they were so excited about it. <laughs> and I thought, I've just been hurtling this multi-million pound jet and you are totally underwhelmed. Uh, but now you're really excited about seeing the guy in the army outfit, which, which by the way, you should be as well. Um, so yeah, another, another leveling as a father. Um, so no, they, don't, they really have no, no, no aspiration to, to follow me. In fact, probably quite the opposite. You want to differentiate yourself. I think it's good to differentiate yourself as well, isn't it? Father, but hey, if they wanted to do it, I would support them fully. If they don't, I'll support them whatever they want to do. Uh, and maybe that's a shift for me as well. Is you know what? I'll, it matters who you are and what you want, not what I want. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I left uh, Kinetic April two years ago, so a little bit more than two years ago now, uh, and with the intention of just really trying to see what was out there. Uh, so I, I ended up coincidentally connecting with um, someone who leads a group of churches that our local church is part of, called Commission. And they've got about 50 or 60 churches in the UK. There's 60 or 70 in India, some of the Iberian Peninsula, one in Nepal, States. And uh, he had a vision about doubling the size of their uh, organization, size of the movement, number of churches, et cetera, by 2020. And uh, I think the most extraordinary thing had happened, uh, bearing in mind it's a community of uh, faith leaders where nobody had faith for the thing the guy leading it had faith for. <laughs> uh, not possible. It's not going to happen. So, so I, I, got, I got connected with him and said, hey, tell me, tell me about how you got about this. And, and, and he said, I've I, I, I And I said, well, I think I might be able to help you. I don't really know that much about what you're trying to do, but I can at least bring something to uh, helping you with the international team, with your UK team. So for the last two years, I've uh, supported them through creating a transformation program for putting different leadership in place or, I guess, engaging, communicating with people in a different way. And um, I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying this because I've shared it with them repeatedly. Uh, some churches are, are the most hierarchical organizations ever. You know, if you want to see a hierarchy, how, how do I know? Because I see them all sitting at the front, all the leaders. And by the way, these are great, these are great, great people. Uh, but uh, there's, unsurprisingly, just like the rest of the world, there's insecurities and fears. And those insecurities and fears cause us to, and often in many cases, there, there isn't uh, really formalized leadership training or, uh, you know, how to lead people and motivate and rule people and things you're doing rather than telling people. So a big part of this journey has been about, uh, let's start listening to you people. What do they think? Because if you don't know what they think, it's going to be pretty hard to lead them because you can't tell them what to do. It's not, a, it's not an organization. And so I, I had quite a bit of pushback initially on, well, it's, you, you don't understand. It's not a business, you know. You know, it's a, it's a church. It doesn't just volunteers. It's, and I made the point repeatedly that people give of themselves for something they believe in. 
They give of themselves and they give of discretionary effort. And I had many, many, many wonderful employees in business who gave far more than they were remunerated for because they believed in the thing that they're doing. They believed in the customer they were doing the work for or whatever their motivator was. They believed in something, something bigger than themselves. So, so I don't hold the view at all that in a, in a voluntary organization, you can't enroll, motivate, inspire people to do the most extraordinary things. But that was quite a big part of the journey as well. But moving from or helping them move from hierarchy to let's engage the people. <laughs> you know, this is the, these are the, these are the people on the battlefield. These are the, these, these are your people. Get them, set them free. Let them run. Uh, and it's amazing what happens. So they've, they've now launched their whole transformation program. Uh, I now just spend limited amounts of time with the international and the UK leadership team, just helping kind of scale them a bit, challenge, uh, push back, uh, but really just try and get alongside them again, uh, which has been a, a tremendous privilege. Um, and was and there anything yeah. different about, uh, did you modify your style or anything else new that you learned in that context versus working with Kinetic? Hmm. I, I think in terms of style, by the time I got to there, I had significantly changed my own style as a consequence of my own understanding of self, people, desire to connect with people. Uh, so I think in that respect, I, I, had, I had broadly made that fairly major transition over the previous few years. Uh, but it was about context. So in order to effectively connect with them, I needed to understand their context. I needed to know more than I knew about what they were doing, why they were doing, what they thought, what they didn't think, what was their past. So trying to get to know them at an individual level and the collective level, looking at both how the individual created the group dynamic and, and, and what the group dynamic did with the individual. And so I'd often get alongside each individual person as well and then as a group. Um, uh, but the, it, it's the learning the context you're in again and not assuming that I understand the context. And that's just another reminder, to be honest. You know, I, in order to be most effective, I need to understand the context because if I don't understand your context, you're probably unlikely to feel that I'm for you because I don't really understand what it is I'm for or who I'm for. So getting connected to the people is really important. So something very relational about that, which I think is so important in coaching and leadership and getting alongside people, is something relational which builds safety, builds permission, builds an environment of trust where who can start doing things they otherwise wouldn't, perhaps wouldn't do. And you were finding you having to do that sort of even more than your time with kinetic or was it, it you were just continuing with with what you'd adopted there i i suspect more in that i was sort of the only person there whereas in 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 the company i had a tremendous group of leaders working around me we've built a great team over a number of years people who've been through similar equipping and development to various levels uh other people out in the business who had done the same we brought in parts of this programs uh, and, and, and plus the fact we just got great people everywhere. So um, I, I, I think I felt a bit different in that I was the only person <laughs> trying to press a different direction, bringing some things that people may have been uncomfortable hearing, but were very gracious about hearing to be fair. Um, 
And one of the things I noticed was their openness and humbleness in receiving pretty serious challenge. Um, because in order to be effective, which again, what, what, is, what does effective mean? But I, I, I felt I, I, I had to connect with them, relate to them, but I had to bring them things they didn't necessarily want to hear. But knowing I'm for them is really important. It goes back to the same thing. I, I'm for you. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, and, and as a leader or a coach, I think that's such a, such a vital, vital thing. It would be for me uh, if someone mm. was not like me. Right. So, so because, because it was just you and it, you, you couldn't, I suppose, lean so much on a, on a team or, or a, a hierarchy of your own, perhaps, mm. to have things happen. But that's interesting but that's interesting because often I hear people when I'm working with people in organizations, very often the complaint is, well, it's just me. You know, I don't have a team. I want this change to happen, but I don't have yeah. the, the people around me to make this happen. That's, that's such a common concern for people. And it sounds to me like, well, what are the insights I'm getting from, from your, this conversation right now is in that context, the relationships are even more important than ever, right? Understanding people's context and building those relationships. Yes, yeah, and of course, in the absence of a preformed team, you are still forming a team. Uh, and so it can be a bit of a cop-out, can't it, to say, oh, I'm the only person there, I can't do it, you know, it's somebody else's problem. Uh, no, actually, I'm 100% I'm, I'm responsible for what's happening as I'm trying to lead them through a change. But I'm 100% responsible for ensuring that I'm working with them as an integrated team, that I'm not doing to them, that they don't think they're having it done, but they're stepping up as well. And I know to appropriately challenge and engage with them. Uh, but you are building a team. And as you will well know, Richard, from change and transformation, one of the really critical things is about who owns this change and transformation program. Because it's not me. And, uh, and, and we've, we've, you know, we've, we've had this sort of dance a few times where I've said, hey, this is not my program. I, I am facilitating you going from where you said you are which, by the way, we often baseline a little bit more carefully, so you actually know the journey you set up on rather than where you're just going. And be really clear about where it is you think you're going. Um, but it's not my program. And I've seen this working with other uh, change organizations, uh, a, num a, number of a number of them, uh, which is not about the people supporting the change. It's often about the leadership, outsourcing leadership, and responsibility and accountability for change. Um, so I've been very, I've tried to be quite careful to be really clear about who's, and, and in fact, as the program's really started to launch and take off now, they've got different leaders in place, I'm backed right out, not because I'm not interested, but because if I'm just in there, in the program, I, it's now still my program. It's not my program, it cannot be my program, otherwise it will never succeed, or it's very unlikely to succeed. Right. So there's two things there. It's building the relationships, understanding the, or three things, understanding context, building relationships, but also making sure the ownership is in the right place. Yeah. You don't carry it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's powerful. We just recently did uh, a very well facilitated exercise on uh, profiling, using profiling tool. And I, I'm, I'm personally having had pretty much every profiling tool done under the sun to me multiple times. And, and by the way, those are quite an interesting thing as well when you're uh, less well-developed in understanding it yourself because 
I really like to pick out the bits I like, and I really don't want to like the bits I don't like. Um, uh, but, but I have quite a, a sense that unless profiling is used well in, in a sort of holistic, integrated way, it can just reinforce a narrative. It can cause us to drive stuff underground or to go back to the conditioning, the belief, the, oh, yeah, yeah, that is what I'm like. Or you get this notion of competition. Hey, I'm, I'm you know, why am I not red? Uh, I should be, oh, I'm only, I'm only green. Yeah, great that you're green, thanks, because you don't need three of me in a room. Um, and, and, and getting the sophistication of that or getting that done appropriately is, is so important. So we had, uh, we had a lady who's a, who's a professional that's doing some work with this team recently on profiling. And uh, yeah, fascinating. If nothing more than, oh, gives me gives me a different window into other people aren't like me. Now, I intellectually knew that. I probably emotionally, relationally knew it. But now they could start to see that they really, really weren't like them. And so what's a more effective way to integrate with them, with me, with others? And recognizing that the people they're leading have a whole spectrum of um, personality types, behaviors, narratives, backdrops, contexts. My goodness, it's a complex world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What we talk to boil down into this little single statement of stuff. You think, all right, I, I, that stuff shouldn't even be coming out of my mouth. It's not, you know. Yeah, that highly complex. And it's almost like, yeah, you, you have to give up trying to comprehend the full complexity of one situation. And just... Yeah, you do, absolutely. Act, uh, act you have to sometimes act as if right act as if the world isn't quite as complex as it really is yes uh, yeah okay yeah, so otherwise it'd be, hard to, it'd be pretty hard to to, to do anything wouldn't it there's so, so many components to it but but being aware it's so powerful isn't it i don't necessarily have to be you know trying to run like a supercomputer in every uh small interaction but having awareness doesn't half help when it's overlaid with an awareness itself Right. Yeah. That's self. It's, well, I mean, if there's one, but yeah, I suppose again, for me, if there's any complex system worth investing and in understanding, then there's, <laughs> there's no better place to start than my own organism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So in terms of self, so we, we just what taking you back to your, your first insight in terms of where you, yourself and your first understanding was around fears. Is there, is there an evolution to that story now? Is is, is that still the, the, the main theme in terms of the work you're doing on yourself or has is, is other stuff emerged over the period? Yeah, so, so part of this connects to my faith as a Christian because um, uh, I think a couple of years back, I went to a conference called Father's Heart Conference and, and in there, the, the main theme was about self-parenting and they were sort of describing these components of self-parenting and these characteristics of people who self-parented and I sort of got to the end of that and thought oh my goodness I've, I've got I've most of those um, but the night before I had gone there for some reason I was sitting exercise bike in the garage and I, I started typing out just little notes about my life and, and you know going, going, kind of going back to school what I thought what I felt what, what, what happened at each stage of that and I, I just had this sort of pretty random set of things but what it did for me is it started to open up uh, wow there's something there's something going on here for me that, that, that that's got a lot of components to it that's what I'm packing and so when I went to this conference and had this this notion of uh, you know because as a Christian I, I, I 
I very much believed in 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 God and Jesus, and uh, who, but I didn't really understand who He said I was. I didn't understand what who who I was, my identity. My identity was wrapped up in things I did or hadn't done, and often it's what you haven't done that forms an identity as much as what you have done. And I would often say, because I would underplay when people ask me what my job was, I would say, oh, I work with whatever. I, I would always try and play it down. I'd always try and sort of and, and trying just to get really frustrated. And I just tell people what you do. Wow, oh, this is a bit awkward, isn't it? Why is it awkward? But what what is a what is a hiding in there? I, I don't know. Is that a is that I don't deserve to be here? Why would you think I would be doing that? I, I don't know. But this thing about self-parenting then took me back to what I was talking about earlier with my with my father. And you know, where do you get that emotional connectivity from if you don't get it in those formative stages? And how do I act and behave as a consequence of that? Um, and I think that was another key accelerator or catalyst to considering some of those deeper aspects that I, I hadn't previously really considered. I had done the unpacking of self, not the narrative that sat behind self to the same extent. Um, I, I, recall, I recall teachers telling my parents, you know, a week before, maybe two weeks before my O-levels, uh, that... You know, I, I would be, you know, like if I passed, if I, you know, any of my exams at some levels to sit. I remember my German teacher, I had a desk, this is embarrassing, really, isn't it? I was 16 or something. I had a desk out the front of my own. Uh, not because I was, distru- well, I was disruptive, because I, I, I just would laugh and but I still found stuff really funny. Um, and so I had this little desk so I wasn't distracting other people, you know, and they would say to my mom, oh, he's, he's oh, my pen. And so he's a really, really, really lovely boy, but I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit distracting. You know, it seems a bit bored when I was seriously bored. Um, uh, but the German, the head of the German department, quite a big school, I remember him walking past behind me, talking to the rest of the class about A-level, and he said, well, you won't be doing it, Paul, then will you? And that's interesting, isn't it? So again, something, there's something being spoken over us. This might be his way of motivating me. But without context, without knowing me, you can you can do the opposite. Hmm. Uh, anyway, long story short, I ended up getting six A's and a B, and and people fell off their chair, no more so than me, I have to tell you. <laughs> and probably my parents were very gracious in saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we knew you'd uh, we knew you'd do well." Yeah. <laughs> Did you? I didn't. Never doubted you for a moment, Gary. I didn't. <laughs> um, so yeah, I suppose that that's the that's the most recent kind of big thing that started to emerge for me, caused me to go into the narrative. What's my narrative underneath all of this? Because if I can understand the narrative better, I can better relate to self, and then I can better relate to others. And I've I've had some great conversations with people over the last sort of I don't know 12, 18 months about about their narrative. So you start to see things in other people. You think, wow, that's interesting. I wonder. I wonder. Mm. Uh, and so, and what is it? So this is the story you tell yourself about yourself. Is that what you mean? It is. Yeah. And what, and yeah. what do you, and what, and what do you, what's emerging for you? What, what do you think are the prominent themes of the story you tell about yourself? I think the story I told about myself was that, um, uh, people only liked me because of stuff I could do for them. Um, that I didn't really like myself. Uh, if I didn't like myself, how could how could my God like me or love me? Uh, and so, and so neither my uh, 
spiritual biblical narrative was was really linked in a way that was uh, that was coherent. That was that was a thing about who I was, and so my identity was all muddled up, and goodness knows what. So the thing about identity was such an important thing for me. What what is my identity? And and I've come right back to my identity is about who God says I am. And, and not who other people have said I am. Or that doesn't mean you can't take input and criticism, challenge. And, but there's, there's something fundamental there, which was not good enough, not smart enough. Um, you know, I, I don't, there's a whole whole story around self. Now, I would never have admitted this story, Richard, two years, five, certainly five years ago. Because I would have been embarrassed by it all. I wouldn't have wanted to share that because it would have exposed weakness or something in me. It would have uh, been embarrassing what people have thought of me. It just made it worse. And, and of course, now I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. Um, and I love to be able to share stuff with people and say, it, it is what it is. But, but, but tomorrow doesn't have to look like yesterday. It really right. doesn't. So I don't feel those things anymore. And as a consequence, I feel, that's why I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the, the work with First Human and, and you guys. Um, I don't feel that at all. Uh, and I don't feel like I'm an expert in anything either, but, but I feel I've got, a, I've got a heart and a head in the right place for uh, really getting alongside other people, getting in the trenches, as it were, to, to try and support them in that development, even, even at times where we don't even think we need, we, we've got anything to unpack or develop. Right. Uh, that, that's really exciting for me. In order to do extraordinary things in the world, well, that's right. You go within. To, a, yeah, to go within, to go without. That's the way I I see it, and that's. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's right. I like that. Yeah. Right, and that's. Uh, um, yeah, that's a reference. Uh, the, the the books just slipped, but um, yeah, it just struck me as you thought. Just one one thought that came to mind there is I had a therapist once, and she. She came at it from an emotional level and a spiritual level, but she she did talk talk about the risk of what she called spiritual bypass, and that's mm-hmm. this idea that we get to a certain level of depth with ourselves, and then we kind of almost prematurely take to oh, and I hand this over to God or to whatever yes. my spiritual being is as a right. as a kind of get out right yes. to yeah. doing the deeper emotional work. Do you ever feel that sense that as a risk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, um, I. You know, I might be deluding myself. I, I don't feel for me, certainly the moment, that it's a risk for me because I believe the stuff that, that, that I am and I've unpacked, I believe, is, is entirely aligned with my spirituality and, and, and beliefs. Um, but but I, 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 I see this frequently, and, and I call it the spiritual trump card. Uh, you know, hey, we're all, uh, you know, we all walk with a limp, don't we? Yeah, well, maybe it doesn't have to be that big a limp. Yeah, maybe I could take the ball bearings out of my shoe and you know put two shoes on that are the same size. That wouldn't limp as much. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm I'm, mm. I'm using that in a silly way to effect. But um, yeah, the, the spiritual trump card. Yeah, well, well, actually, it's okay because God loves me, and uh, you know, it's fine. Well, it, well, it is fine, but 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 I believe He wants so much more for you, uh, and and that and that unpacking. And for me, the whole you know the whole science and religion and God is it God's science and you know what it, I, I think it's something powerful about really understanding self really 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 understanding self but if I can pull out a spiritual trump card and that becomes a defense mechanism for me I never have to go there but but if I don't go there it's going to seriously impact my ability to lead motivate inspire other people to do extraordinary things yeah and, and 
I, I see this with some spiritual leaders. Uh, I, I see that self-limiting. Because on the one hand, if, if, if the biblical uh, question is that nothing's impossible with God, yet, yet here we are as spiritual leaders putting these little low bars and going after things that, you know, probably we could do if we didn't get out of bed. Um, that, that doesn't feel to me, you know, well, God will make that happen. Well, maybe he, kind of, he wants us to make stuff happen. And, and, and also for me, there isn't a conflict between my faith and, 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 and trying, to, trying to really get alongside people, whether they have that faith or they don't have that faith. Because my interpretation of my Christian faith is I'm called to love people. Yeah? I'm not called to love people who are Christians. I'm called to love people. So get alongside people. Whatever you're at, however you're at, I want to get alongside you um, and help you do extraordinary things in the world. That's what, that's what really matters to me. I don't, I don't, the, the, two are, the two are really integrated for me. Uh, but they're, not, they're integrated but not exclusive. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, that's, a, that's a great message to, uh, to start to close out this interview. I mean, there is one question I always... Ask my guest the final question. So for you, Gary, what, what does it mean to be human? Mm, what does it mean to be human? I, I think for me, it's, uh, it, it's the integration, a relationship between that uh, physical material narrative, spiritual narrative, and for me personally, the biblical narrative, and how those things also, that's really what we've been touching on actually, mm. is how all those things come together in an, in an integrated way and how you synthesize and fuse those things in the right way. Because if you synthesize and fuse them in the wrong way, you create exclusivity, you create alienation, you, uh, you, you, know, you create all the things that people will often look at from a spiritual perspective and point out and say, ha, that's, that's a problem because, and in many cases, you're absolutely right because it's inappropriately synthesized and integrated and fused. So for me, it's how, how those things come together that, that really matters, which goes right back to my point about, you know, I'm called to love people. I'm not called to love people that are like, that I've been, you know, not that like, that, 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 that I choose out of a specific group of people and what they believe or don't believe or anything else. That's not, that's not what I'm called to do. And that's not how I want to get alongside people. I want to get alongside people on the basis of, my integrated narrative connected with your narrative and i'm really happy with whatever your narrative is i just want to get alongside and support fantastic okay uh so in terms of people understanding more about the things that we've touched on so is there a is there a link to your faith community that you'd like to share with people is for people who may be interested in in that there's actually a link to the commission website where there's an interview with the, um, the guy called Guy who has been, uh, who leads the commission group of churches. So there's a little interview with him. People can link on that. They can link further if, if they'd like to through the, uh, through that's the, the, co- the commission. Um, so yeah, what's the commission? Uh, right. Yeah, so commission. commission.org. Uh, that's a great question. Actually, I don't know. I never looked them up. <laughs> Maybe I should. Oh, we'll, put that in, we'll put that in there. We'll put that in the description. So there'll be a link to that yeah. to that organisation. And of course, you're you're an associate with First Human. If people are yes. more interested in getting your your coaching in a business context, yeah, yes, fabulous. Right, Richard. Thank you. It's been thank uh, you so much, Gary. 
it's been wonderful it's uh yeah uh so really thank you for your time and and for sharing as, as deeply as you have today thank you thank you very much the being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com <laughs>